2: Hello, welcome along to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine, this week chatting to Joanna Cannon. Her new book is a tidy ending. It's a character-driven story, all about Linda, Strange Terry, and Rebecca, who used to live in the house before them. Uh, We talk about why Joe likes to move when things start to move, also why procrastination is sometimes more important than the words you actually get down that day, and... Why you should never let the myths you tell yourself hold you back.
3: We allow things to hold us back. We allow this internal narrator that we have to hold us back. You know, you might be sitting there and thinking, oh, it's all right for her, I'll never get published. I don't know anybody in London, which is nonsense. There's this myth that you have to know people in London. I'd been to London twice in my whole life before I wrote Goats and Sheep. So, and I knew no one in London, absolutely no one. It just bewildered me the whole place. Um, So that was a myth. And then you think, oh, I'm too old, which is nonsense. I mean, I qualified as a doctor in my 40s. I wrote my debut novel in my 40s. You are not too old. There are some amazing young authors out there. But equally, somebody with more life experience, who's who's seen things and heard things and done things, they, they can drink from that well.
2: It's a really inspirational one this week. Loads of help for you on the way with Joanna Cannon in Writer's Routine. Yes. Welcome along to the show. My name's Dan. Thank you for being there. This is Writer's Routine, the show that is just t- so simple. We take a look through an author's working day. We ask them questions to unpack uh, how they work, when they work, where they work, and why they work sometimes, how they take ideas and expand those little little nuggets of a story idea and how they flesh them out into into a novel that gets published this week it's a as i said a very inspirational chat with a sunday times bestseller joanna cannon uh she, she got some huge success early on in her writing career anyway which really was the third act of her life uh it was a debut bestseller the trouble with goats and sheep which is all about 10-year-old Grace and Tilly, who become amateur detectives in 1967. And Joanna's story of how she got to that point of writing a novel really is fascinating. She goes into some detail uh, in the interview, but the headlines, really. She left school at 15 with one O-level, then qualified as a doctor in her 40s. She worked as a barmaid, a kennel maid, a pizza delivery girl, and and then, as a doctor, she would get to work early, And right in the car park before she started work and then right in her lunch break. And if you think uh, doctors don't get an amazing amount of free time. So to spend all that working on a novel, it takes some dedication. We talked to Joe about why she did that and how she found that. Also, you can hear about the preposterously early time that she still gets up and how her dog is an alarm clock. Uh, Also how she knows the last line of a book at the very start, but she knows very little about how she'll get there. You can hear how the characters completely take over and why for her the theme is the most important thing. The new book is a tidy ending. It's all about Linda, Strange Terry and Rebecca, who used to live in the house before them. Uh, Joe has been likened to Alan Bennett and Victoria Wood. They're proper character-driven novels, these And I think you'll really enjoy learning some tips and some tricks and just how Jo gets to work, really. So let's jump into it. And we start, as we always do, with what Joanna Cannon sees around her in the place where she sits down to write.
3: I see mainly my dog and a mug of tea. I don't have an office. I don't have a a posh writer's desk or a, a bookshelf or anything like that. I tend to travel around the house and sit wherever the mood takes me, usually on a sofa. And as long as I've got a pint mug of tea and my German Shepherd with me, then I'm happy. So I'm not. I'm not one of these people with you see on Instagram. Sometimes these glorious writing rooms and studies and offices. Um, I'm not one of those people. I've always written kind of on the hoof. So that that's how it goes with me.
2: So, I, I guess. At what point do you move, you know, trying to break this down as much as I can, because it's it's the point of the show, but like (laughs) at what whim are you moving and deciding, oh, now I might write in the kitchen, now I might write in the lounge?
3: I think when I finish a set, if I move from place to place within the story, I like to move geographically within the house just to have a different view. I like to sometimes sit in the garden. That helps. I like the birds around me and the kind of, I like silence. That's my only, I'm quite a... An easy person when it comes to where I write, but I do have to have silence. Sometimes the sound of my own breathing can put me off writing. Um, I really envy these people who write in bookshop, uh, sorry, coffee shops and, and cafes and things like that because I would just get too distracted. I would be too busy eavesdropping. So I have to have silence. Um, I don't mind the sounds of nature, but the sounds of human beings tends to put me off. And I move around when I feel I've perhaps come to the end of a section of the book and I want to perhaps change viewpoint with the characters. I will I will travel to somewhere else in the house, but it depends how lazy I'm feeling.
2: So the only thing you're taking with you is your mug of tea and your dog and a, a, a laptop. Is that what you're working on?
3: Yes, I work on a laptop. Um, I started writing actually in, if you, anybody Googles me, they will find this out immediately. I wrote my first novel when I was working as a doctor, which is what I did before I was an author. And I wrote it in an NHS car park in my lunch break. Um, if I got a lunch break that is and I didn't think anyone would ever read it I thought my mum might read it and that book ended up being The Trouble with Goats and Sheep so when I worked in my car even though I'd perhaps only got 20 minutes half an hour I used to write on paper because my laptop battery couldn't even stand 20 minutes half an hour in those days so I'd write kind of longhand but I do prefer a laptop now because it allows me kind of edit as I go along which is one of my one of my things is I like to edit as I go, which I'm sure you will get into later. Um,
2: well, we do get quite niche on the show and quite nerdy. Um, so it's on the laptop. I like niche
3: and nerdy. It's great. Yeah, no, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> what,
2: um, what what writing software are you working on? And then also, uh, what font are you using very simply?
3: Um, I, I'm an old fashioned girl and I'll use Times New Roman. But if I want to edit, I will change the font. And I can't remember who gave me this piece of advice, but it was a really good piece of advice. Anybody out there looking to edit, just change the font of your document because you will see it through fresh eyes. But when I write kind of originally, I will write in in a very traditional Times New Roman font. And I, I write in a Word document. I've got a MacBook, but I write in a Word document. And, and I just sit there deleting and, and agonizing over commas and and that kind of weird behavior that writers do when they sit on their own for too long. Um, and I and like I say, I edit as I go. So the first thing I do every morning as I sit in the garden or the sofa or wherever I am with my dog and my mug of tea is I will go through whatever I wrote the day before and I'll go through with fresh morning eyes. And it is very early in the morning because I get up about half two, three o'clock, um, which sometimes when I go on Twitter, people are still up from the day before. So my morning kind of drifts into other people's nights. But it's a habit from when I was at medical school because it was the only time that I had to myself. So I would get up very early and I still do that and I find I'm most productive in the morning.
2: Um, Well, I'm going to get into that in in just a second. I want to pick up on something you said just a, a moment ago. You were talking about writing your debut on your lunch break. Now, you know, you were a doctor at the time. I would imagine quite busy doctors are quite busy why are you using the only free time that you've got at work that day like this little quiet moment of rest and relaxation during your lunch why are you using that to write what is making you determined to get this book out I guess why do it
3: I was very stressed um down when I was a doctor I I'd always wanted to be a doctor ever since I was at school but I didn't think I was clever enough so I left school when I was 15 with one O level And I went back many years later in my 30s to study A-levels, and I eventually became a doctor, the thing I wanted to do. But it was so stressful and so intense seeing, you know, all these pieces of other people's lives drift past you every day when people are most vulnerable, and you would see some incredibly upsetting things, which obviously you knew that was going to happen when you were training. But it's a a whole different ballgame when it's right there in front of you. And I pretty soon realised I'd got to have a coping mechanism. And my coping mechanism was writing just for fun just for the hell of it just to escape that that stressful busy life for a little while so instead of going to the doctor's mess which is where everyone else would go um, which was full of medical talk it was you might as well have been back on the wards because it was all doctors talking about medicine nobody was relaxing um I used to just go and sit in my car on my own and I would sit and write just for twenty minutes half an half an hour with my League of Friends sandwich and my flask of tea and it would just take me away from that life just, just for 20 minutes. And it, it helped me to cope, it helped me to deal with all the things that I was seeing. And and it was it was therapy for me really.
2: And when you were writing it, I know you said that you only imagined that your mum would read it, but how, how much thought were you giving to like the the I guess the quality of it and, and the form of what a published book needs to be like now when you write I imagine you put quite a lot of yeah, consideration into editing it because you know that this needs to be written in a certain way so it sells for your audience and all of that whereas at that time was it just almost just a stream of consciousness I guess
3: it was in a way although I'm quite a perfectionist I think all doctors are perfectionists Um and so I wanted it to be the best I could make it and I'd read some books that really appealed to me and made me want to write. I'd recently read Sarah Winman, When God Was a Rabbit, which I absolutely adored. And I thought, I wonder if I could write a book because it just appealed to me, the telling of stories. And of course, as a doctor, all you're saying all day are other people's stories. And whilst I would never allow those stories to bleed into my work, it does make you understand how important storytelling is from reading Sarah Winman to sitting in A&E and taking a history it's all about stories and people are made up of stories. So I wanted it to be the best that I could make it. But I, did, I didn't for one second ever think it would be published. My dog wakes me up. I have a German shepherd-shaped alarm clock who wakes me up at about half past two in the morning because that's what he's used to. And we get up and we, we go for a walk through the fields in the dark, usually. Although this time of year it's starting to break light as we're walking around, which is beautiful. And as I'm walking, I'm kind of thinking about what I'm writing. I'm thinking about if I've written myself into a plot hole and how I'm going to, to find my way out again. I'm thinking about the characters. I'm thinking about what I want to say in this story because I think that's the most important thing of all. If you're writing a book, you have to ask yourself, why am I telling this story? What do I want the reader to leave with? Not in any kind of preachy way, but in a, in a purposeful way. And you, you think to yourself, why, why am I writing this? What am I trying to say? So I've got that in my mind all the time. So by the time I get home from my kind of two hour walk through the fields, I will sit, make a giant pot of strong builder's tea, um, pour myself a pint mug and sit there with my laptop and I will read whatever I wrote the day before. And I tend to write probably about a thousand words a day, if I can. I think people get very fixated on word counts and how many words they've managed to put down and they tell themselves off for procrastinating. But I think procrastination is, we should be kinder to ourselves for procrastination, because it's its allowing ideas to form in our minds. And it's sitting with those ideas, and thinking about them, and getting to know them. And I think, you know, when I was little, and we used to, to make bread, we would put the dough in the airing cupboard. And we would leave it there for a couple of hours until it doubled in size. And I think procrastination inverted commas is a kind of a leaving the dough to rise situation and it's just as important if not more important than the number of words you get down so a lot of my day will be spent procrastinating if I kind of drift into playing spider solitaire then I do tell myself off a little bit Um, but I do allow myself to sit and think because it's amazing how your mind will untangle something if you give it the space and so I will sit for most of the day writing, thinking, allowing that that dough to rise. And then by kind of two o'clock, I'm pretty much done for the day. I don't usually write much in the afternoon. I can tell you how productive my day has been by midday because bear in mind, I'm starting to write at about six in the morning. So my 6 a.m. to midday is my most productive time. And then after that, I will just allow myself to write if I wish, but no big deal if I don't. And if I don't write, I will read um, because there's nothing more inspirational than other people's words.
2: Those, you know, waking up so early, I, I know that it's you, you are now used to it, but is, is it still perfectly natural for you? Is any part of it a shock? Is, is your energy ebbing and flowing towards the end of the day when you've already been up for 13, 14 hours?
3: It does a little bit. Um, the only shock I get is when my, my dog jumps on the bed at such an early hour of the morning. Um, but it, I tend to, it's just the kind of rhythm of your, your mind and your body. I think you do get used to it. And I've been doing it for such a long time that it's second nature to me now. And I just love the feeling that I have the whole world to myself. There's no emails coming in. Twitter's very quiet. You know, Instagram's very quiet. There's no messages. There's no texting. Everyone's asleep. And I feel as though I've got time and silence, which, as I said, was important to me, um, just to sit there with my ideas and think about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And it does get a little tricky if I stay up too late. I do tend to try and go to bed about seven o'clock, but it all depends on what's happening online and who I'm talking to on Twitter and who's posting on Instagram and all these other distractions that we get kind of during the day and the evening. So I do try and be very disciplined and I try and get to bed for seven. But if I don't, um, then I do regret it the next day, I have to say.
2: I know you've said that you enjoy that moment at the start of the day when it is just you, you and your ideas and your dog. Why why carry on with this though? Why not readjust your sense of day and and the the, the, the way you work and the timings of it to you know, quote, what, what an average person would do. Why are you not pulling the nine to five? And so you can go out and you can see mates or you can chat in the evening with people and not have that guilt of being knackered the next day.
3: You know, I've tried it, Dan. I've tried being normal and it just didn't work out for me. <laughs> um, I, I tried to, you know, after I'd finished being a doctor when I, when I, I started writing full time, I thought, well, you know, I've, I'm not doing shift work anymore. I don't have to to be in a certain place, certain time. I can do what I want. Why don't I try living a normal life and going to bed when normal people do and getting up when normal people do? And I tried it for a little while. And I thought, nah, this isn't for me. Um, I, I'm just um, just a, a quirky person who just likes her own company. I think. I think one one editor, newspaper editor. Uh, described me recently as a fascinating woman who dances to her own tune which I think was her way of saying that she's completely mad um, but I'm happy the way I'm and I think that's an important message for anyone out there who's writing it's it's what works for you and you will read and I read when I, when I was starting out when I thought maybe I'm good enough to be published maybe I should try seeing what happens I was reading about how people got their agents and how people did this and what they did and how many words they wrote and where they wrote. And I think your program and, and people talking about their unique ways that it, that work for them, is a good way of explaining to people that actually it's what, what suits you. And if it suits you to get up at midday, then that's wonderful. If you If you've got the life, you can do that. And if you want to be like me and get up in the early hours of the morning and walk through the fields in the dark just to kind of settle your head down, that's fine as well and I think it's it's an important message to send to people that it's whatever works for you it's lovely to listen to what other people do and you might get ideas about your own routine and what might work in your case but I think at the end of the day it, it's what works and I, I've tried being normal and being normal it wasn't for me.
2: Just some very mundane things I'm interested by that really have no bearing upon your writing. When do you have your meals if you're waking up so early? When are you having breakfast, lunch and dinner?
3: <laughs> I have my breakfast. Um, I usually have a bowl of porridge when I get back from walking my dog because I'm, I'm quite in need of sustenance by then because he's quite a big dog and he, he pulls quite a bit. So I have that. My lunch I usually have around half 10, 11 o'clock, something like that. Um, and I don't have an evening meal. I will have a crisp sandwich or something light in the afternoon. I am not a very good advertisement for healthy eating, I'm afraid. Um, you know, doctors say as I say, as I say not, do as I say rather than not as I do. Um, so I, I do have three, th- kind of three meals. Um, but my life, I just think of myself as being four or five hours ahead of everyone else um, in the day. So that that's when I, and I eat when I'm hungry. Um I am constantly hydrated by tea. That's my only prerequisite.
2: Well, so aside from tea, mm. when the words aren't coming out, when they are struggling, is there anything else that helps you? I would imagine perhaps not because you can't write with music, as you've said, you you need yeah. utter silence, you're having your tea, but uh, <laughs> is there anything little that you've found just helps uh, you know oil the cog?
3: I think if if you're sitting there and you're looking at your Word document and you're looking at it for an hour and nothing is happening, I think you should let yourself off and, and go and do something completely different. Um, I think, you, you know, you, it's no point wringing it out like a dishcloth just to get your words on the page. But if I feel I'm stumped a little bit or my, my mind's getting too full of it, I will go outside, sit in the garden, feed the birds, play with my dog, do something completely different. Um, and also I like jigsaw puzzles, bizarrely. I find jigsaw puzzles really helpful, whether they're working a different part of your brain to writing because they're kind of more analytical than creative. I don't know, but I find if I do something like a jigsaw puzzle or I play my piano, which is kind of quite mathematical, then that just takes me out of the moment and, and gives me space to think about what I'm trying to say. But I will, I will generally just walk away from it if it's, if it's getting me down and I'm feeling pressure on myself. I will walk away and go and do something completely different.
2: I know you said you aim for a thousand words every day, although that's not absolutely vital. How do you know what you're writing that day? Is there a big, I guess when you sit there, you know, first in Crack dawn, when you sit there, have you got an idea of where you need to end up? Is there some grand overarching plan?
3: No, in a way there isn't really. I mean, I know where the book is going to end and I always know the last line of the book. With all my, no- all my novels, I've always known the last line. I've always known my end point. Even before I started writing, I knew where it would finish. But I don't always know how I'm going to get there. And I think if you write kind of police procedurals and thrillers and things like that, I think you need to have plans and you need to have post-it notes all over the place and you need to have some kind of structure or else you will write yourself into a corner. But the kind of writing that I do, which is more character-driven, I think you can just allow the characters to take you. So if I was going on a journey, I would know that I will end up in Glasgow and I'm gonna start off here, but I'm not entirely sure how I'm gonna get there. And let's just see where the roads take us. And I found that to be quite useful because some things that have happened in my novels, for example, in the trouble with goats and sheep, the face of Christ appeared on a drain pipe. Um, And I didn't know that was going to happen when I first started writing, I had no idea. But the characters just took me there. They were all sitting in their houses in the middle of the 1976 heat wave. And I knew I got to get them outside. And I thought, how am I going to get them outside? And this idea just drifted into my mind. And I thought, oh, that's a great idea. Right, we'll do that then. We We will have some kind of miracle happen on this avenue where they all live. And that will bring them all out of their houses. But when I started off, I didn't know that. And I think if I'd started off with more structure... I perhaps would have felt reluctant to deviate from it and I would have written within a corridor of my own thinking rather than allowing the characters to take me somewhere new.
2: To analyse the philosophy, I guess, behind that, uh, do you, where do you think those ideas are, are coming from? So you've, you've come up with these characters, you've set them on their way. The idea that an image of Christ is turning up on a drainpipe or whatever it is, the idea that that's is there where do you as a writer think that is coming from because it's quite left field like is it your is it something in your brain always knew it was going to happen is it these characters that are taking over what's going on
3: you know as that when you said the show is niche I think Jesus on a drain pipe is quite niche um I think I have a strong believer that your mind works a lot without you realizing what what it's doing so I will very often get to page 250 of a novel that I'm writing and something that I wrote on page 13 that was very casual and I didn't really know why I put it, put it in that suddenly makes sense to me And I think oh, that's why I wrote that and I think my mind is is working kind of undercover to slot these things in I think your mind picks things up throughout the day things you read things you watch people you talk to the voices of people that you hear casually at a bus stop or in a supermarket. And I think these little seeds end up in your mind. And I think those seeds grow and flourish. And somewhere within a story they will find a place. When I when I look at Three Things About Elsie, which is my second novel, it begins with a woman who an old elderly woman who's fallen in her flat. And she's lying there waiting for someone to notice that she's missing from her life. And nobody comes, nobody realizes. And when I worked in A&E, we would get a lot of elderly people brought in who had fallen. And they would lie there for hours sometimes. And sometimes they'd come in with third-degree burns where they'd fallen against a radiator and they couldn't move and they were lying there all night. And I used to think, what must they think? You know, they've been on this planet for 70 or 80 years and they're missing and no one notices, no one realizes. And it really affected me. And that little seed somehow planted itself in my mind. And when I came to write three things about Elsie, that was how the book began. So I think these these ideas, where Jesus on a drainpipe came from, I do not know, but at some point in my life, that must have lodged itself somewhere in the neurons and um, and bided its time until it was ready to, to come out in a book. But I, I do think, and I've I've spoken to other writers who've said the same thing, that these ideas and, and this external stimulus um, is is hugely important for writing. I can remember going to a lecture by uh, the chap who wrote Reggie Perrin. And he said, David Nobbs, and he said that he was talking to the guy who wrote Rising Damp. And obviously massive success, you know, made a lot of money. And the guy who wrote Rising Damp um, ended up in this huge mansion in Northamptonshire, he had a driver, he only went with a driver to the shops and back again, he didn't really go out and he said to David, you know, I I can't write anything else, there's just nothing happening, nothing's coming and David says it's because you're living in a huge mansion in Northamptonshire. you you never go out, you never see normal people, ordinary people, that's why and I think this this idea of ordinary which is, you know, my characters are always ordinary people Um, I think that's so important, so wherever you are whatever you're doing, if you're in a long queue in Sainsbury's and it's getting on your nerves, just stand there and listen and think of it as research because all around you are stories and everyone is made up of stories. And something you hear or see will will lodge yourself in in your mind and it it will find a place to, to settle itself eventually.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.
1: Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started
2: we'll get back into it with more from joanna cannon in just a sec i'm very quickly popping up to say thank you for being there thank you for listening thank you for supporting the show uh, I really appreciate reading all your kind comments on uh, Twitter and at com and on the Apple reviews. Uh, if you are enjoying the show and if you've learned anything along the way that has really helped the way that you write, the way that you find stories, the way that you put them onto paper and get to work, well, you can help us out by supporting the show over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Just a dollar or so a month really helps us keep going. It helps us keep bringing you these chats with the best authors around as often as we can. I think it's a really inspirational chat today. We've got loads more like it. If you would like to to, to see them in your podcast feeds as frequently as possible, support us at Patreon. Just a couple of dollars a month really helps us carry on uh, and, and it gets you some stuff. Of your fancy, you get R and Dying Thanks, uh, of course. You also get merch, you get bonus content, and there is a way for your book to sponsor this show. So if you love what we do, if you like to, to see it as often as you can, chats with the best authors around, make sure to support the show at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back into it then with Joanna Cannon talking about her brand new novel, A Tidy Ending. It's all about Linda, Strange Terry and Rebecca, who lived in the house before them. She wrote it during lockdown. Do you remember that point of lockdown where you were, you had nothing really to do, so you were questioning the way you thought about everything? Those questions that Jo asked led to this novel. We talk about how the characters completely take over when she gets going, why for her theme is the most important thing, and we pick things up. Jo said that she just started writing this novel in her lunch breaks when she was a doctor. It was something to do, a way to get creative, to to, to get it out there. When she was writing it just for fun on her own, what made her think, hang on, maybe this has got legs and can be published?
3: I think because I'm so critical of of myself, not of other people, of myself, and I read it, what I'd written, I'd written about 30,000 words, about a third of a book, and I read it and I thought, I don't think this is this is all right, actually. I think this is okay. I thought, I wonder if it's any good. And I was just curious as to see what someone else would think. Because the only person who'd heard it was my dog. I'd read it out to my dog. Nobody else had heard it. I wonder if it's any good. So I was just nosy, really, to see if I thought people would like it. And there was a, a writing festival in York. And I thought, there's a competition in this writing festival where it was a bit of like a literary X factor where you, you stood in front of, in a room full of agents and authors and, and editors and you read out, I think it was 500 words of your work in progress. And I thought, shall I enter it into this competition? And I left it until the very last minute. And I thought, go on then, I'll enter it. So I entered it. And being in that competition was the most nerve wracking thing I have ever done. It made medical finals look like a walk in the park. My knees were shaking. I was utterly terrified. I thought, people are going to think I'm stupid. And I stood on the stage and I read it and I won the competition. And that was on the Friday night. And by the Monday, I'd got seven agents offering me representation for this book that was a third written that I'd read, written in a car park that I thought my mum might read. And it, it was just overwhelming. It was a little bit like a Richard Curtis film. Um, you know, I had I'd no idea that, that people would enjoy it so much. And I chose my agent, um, and they're all wonderful. And I, I hadn't got anybody to ask. I didn't know who's, who had advice to ask from. So I, I chose the person that I thought I would get on with as a human being, which was a very good decision because your agent is somebody that will stay with your editors and, and publicists and, and, you know, people at the publishing house move around. But hopefully your editor will be with you for the long run and so you need to choose somebody that you get on with as a person and i did that and i made a very wise choice and by the end of the week my agent had sold the book to Harper Collins and it, it was it was i thought i was having an acute psychotic episode it was just bizarre to think that, that this book was suddenly going to be published it was amazing
2: it's amazing that like the, the third act of your life obviously starting off without uh leaving school quite early and then doing all these different jobs and then becoming a doctor and now becoming a successful author like it's not everyone that has had three very definitive acts of their life like you have joe i would say
3: yeah that's right and i think we allow things to hold us back we allow this internal narrator that we have to hold us back you know you might be sitting there and thinking oh it's all right for her, I'll never get published. I don't know anybody in London, which is nonsense. This this myth that you have to know people in London. I'd been to London twice in my whole life before I wrote Goats and Sheep. So, And I knew no one in London, absolutely no one. It just bewildered me the whole place. Um, so that was a myth. And then you think, oh, I'm too old, which is nonsense. I mean, I qualified as a doctor in my 40s. I wrote my debut novel in my 40s. You are not too old. There are some amazing young authors out there but equally somebody with more life experience who's who's seen things and heard things and done things they they can drink from that well and i think your age as a, as a barrier is, is utter nonsense your date of birth should be like your national insurance number you should keep it in the back of a drawer because you need to take it out sometimes to fill out a form But other than that just ignore it it's it's not relevant um you know and i, I didn't think i was i was clever enough to do medicine, which held me back, because I listened to this internal narrator, and that was clearly nonsense. So I think, you know, you have to step out of your comfort zone, you have to stop listening to this hugely critical voice. I mean, we would never speak to somebody else the way we speak to ourselves. And if I'd listened to that internal narrator, I would never have entered that competition at York. And I would still be sitting in my car now, chewing the end of my pencil, wondering if my writing was any good. So I think it's important to to just tell that internal narrator to do one and and go out there and just see, you know've I've unfortunately, I've spent a lot of time uh, with dying patients and I've sat at many deathbeds and I have never once heard anybody say that they regret trying something. So I think it's it's so important to just get out there. And make, I know it's vulnerable. You make yourself vulnerable. I felt so vulnerable reading out those words at York. But just imagine that none of this would have happened if I'd, if I'd listened to that silly voice in my head.
2: The new book, A Tidy Ending. Um, tell us about the first moment that the idea for this story came into your mind, Joe. How did it present itself?
3: Well, I um, went several times to an event in Oxford called Short Stories Aloud, which was held at Blackwell's. And it was different authors writing a short story, which was then narrated by an actor, and you could either pay admission or you could or you could take a cake. It was that kind of place. it was amazing. I loved it they they hooked me in with a cake for a start um so I went quite a few times, and there was an actor there called Melissa Berry who was incredible. she's Welsh, and she was the most incredible is the most incredible actor and I remember hearing her. Reading someone else's short story and thinking, oh, my goodness, she's amazing. She would make a great, slightly unhinged character. She just got that right amount of bubble of just kind of on the edge of simmering over in her voice. So when they asked me to write a short story, if I would do it, um, I knew straight away I wanted Melissa to read it. And so I wrote a short story called Captivating, which um, was a main character called Linda, who was very socially awkward misreading cues not quite understanding how the world worked so she was very funny but she was also very poignant and Melissa read the story and it was amazing she did a fantastic job and I thought well that's that Linda is now put to bed um, but Linda stayed with me and the voice of Linda stayed with me this kind of s- slight Welsh lilt and this slightly psychopathic person um socially awkward woman and she stayed with me and I thought she's got more to say So she ended up in a book, and that book became a tidy ending. Um, She acquired a husband called Terry, who uh, she didn't quite know if she loved him or if she'd ever loved him before. And she acquired an obsession with the woman who used to live in her house. And she acquired an obsession with looking at all the kind of images that we're bombarded with on Instagram and magazines and adverts about how we should be living this perfect life. And how we should be um, the best version of ourselves that we can be. And she, she buys into this, Linda. She thinks she, she needs to buy this, that and the other and become a certain person to be popular. Um, so, yeah, you know, she's listening to her internal narrator as well. And Linda, Linda turned into a whole book. And the reason that I, I wrote it was when I I specialised in psychiatry when I became a doctor. And I used to do outpatient clinics where i talked to a lot of people with anxiety and depression. And as part of the history taking, used to say to them, can you remember how this all started? And so many people would say, well, it started with something I saw on Facebook. And it was all about comparison and comparing ourselves to, to our friends and our work colleagues and now the world at large with the, with the benefit of social media, that we are constantly comparing ourselves you know they've had two weeks holiday i only had one their christmas tree is bigger than mine their husband's better looking than mine their house is bigger than mine and this is how people end up down a down a road of self-hatred and feelings of inadequacy which eventually lead to to depression and anxiety so i wanted to explore that and linda was the perfect person to do that with i don't have any plans i don't have any <clears throat> ideas i know the theme of the story and i know what i want to say which i think is the most important thing and i will I went to a a workshop once with Julie Cohen, the author Julie Cohen, and she said, you should be able to write down the the meaning, the theme of your book in one word. What is your book about in one word? And write that word down on a post-it note and put it above your desk or your sofa or wherever you write and keep looking at that word and keep making sure that your story is true to that word. And I think that was really good advice. So I knew what what my word was, and my word was envy. And I knew Linda's voice. I knew it so well because I'd heard it for so long, right from the day when I wrote the short story. She was living in my head. So I I kind of knew where the story was going as far as character development. But the logistics of the story and what would happen and all the different characters, I didn't know. I knew straight away that she was married, and I knew she was unhappily married. I knew that she didn't have any children, and I knew she worked in a charity shop. Because charity shops always fascinate me because this is where people cast off their previous lives. They decide to reinvent themselves. And so they, they give away all their clothes because that, that those clothes don't suit who they want to be now. And they will go out and buy themselves a new personality. And I think advertising and media encourages to do that. You know, if you buy this lipstick or this coat, you will live this beautiful life. Um, so I knew she worked in a charity shop. And I knew she lived on a very ordinary estate because I like stories about ordinary people.
2: How are you getting to know that before you start writing? Is it brainstorms, mind mapping or just deep, deep, pensive skin crack- uh, chin scratching?
3: Chin scratching. Oh, yeah. I just I walk through the veils and I think, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that consumerism has no happy ending. I'm trying to say that self-belief and self-worth doesn't come from material things. I'm trying to say that you know, we, we should all take a look around us at what really matters. And I think a lot of this book was written during lockdown when there was lots of time for self-reflection and lots of time for introspection. So that, that kind of added to the, to the ambiance of my writing day. And also, <clears throat> because I'm fascinated by ordinary people, I wanted to explore the idea that how well do we know our neighbours? How well do we know the people around us? Um, So it's a very claustrophobic book. All all my stories are are kind of in claustrophobic environments. Goats and sheep was in the heat wave on a a cul-de-sac. And Three Things About Elsie was in an old people's home. And all the people, I think if you look at stories and successful stories, a lot of them are about people who are trapped, either mentally, emotionally, or physically trapped somewhere. Um, So all of my stories have this kind of oppressive feel that somebody's in a situation they they want to get out of so I knew all of those things um but the rest of it just happened as I went along
2: what you knew about how you wanted it to be a book that uh, touched on capitalism and and consumerism and y- you know you won't find who you want to be by buying things online that kind of stuff um it, that's quite a Like It's quite a sincere message. How worried were you through writing this that the message might overtake the narrative and the plot and and make it too worthy?
3: I think you have to... It's it's a good question. You have to have a balance. You have to have a strong enough character and a strong enough plot that you can weave in what you want to say around that. And I think you have to concentrate on the story and where the story is taking you and if you bear in mind in your subconscious why you're trying to tell it, I think the message, if you like, although I don't I don't like that word, but the message will appear within the pages. If you've got a strong enough story and you've got determination, because writing 90,000 words is a hell of a hike, you've got to really believe in what you're saying. And if you really believe that, then it will find its way in there. But you need a strong story as well. You need a book. I mean, there are some books that I read that are beautiful, and they have beautiful messages and beautiful themes, but nothing really happens. You get to the end of the story and you think, What happened? Nothing happened. Um, so you've got to have a, a, you know, a good plot and good, strong characters. And I think all your kind of um, complementary characters have also got to be fully rounded and fully formed. And you should say to yourself, Terry, Linda's husband, has his own story. We might not hear it in this book, but. We know he has a story. He can't just be there as a plot device. He's got to have his own character and his own background and his backstory. And I think you need to take out every character that you're dealing with and ask yourself, is this a well-formed character? And if you do that, and if you have the idea that you are going to get to Glasgow eventually, I think those themes and those messages will find their way in there.
2: I know you said that you edit to a degree as you go along, but writing as you do in such an, like quite open-endedly, you you know that you'll end up in Glasgow, as you say, but you might go straight from A to B. You might have a 500-mile diversion. At, At what state, in what state rather, does your first draft look like when you're done with it? So uh, 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 it, writing as you do could lead you very open to it being very long, very baggy with tangents that go all over the place. H- how, do, how does it look when you finish that very first draft?
3: Because I edit so ferociously as I go along. And if I'm trying to get to Glasgow and I wake up one day and realise I'm in Torquay, um, I know that I've got to scrap that and rewrite whatever section I'm on. So I'm I'm very strict with myself that I'm heading where I want to head to. And because I, I edit so ferociously, as I say, by the time I've finished my first draft, that is what I will send to my editor, my agent, because it will take me a lot longer. It's not that I'm brilliant at writing first drafts. It's just that I do the process in a different way around. So whilst other people will write a very quick first draft and then go back several times and rework it, I am reworking it as I go along in thousand kind of word chunks, in daily chunks. So by the time I get to the end, I'm at the same place that the other person is who wrote the quick first draft. But we've both edited and we've both reached a point now where we can send it to our our agent, to our editor. So my first draft is what you read, aside from the kind of things that my editor will put in and suggest very wisely. Um, but that that is really what, what I send off, is that first draft.
2: Although the plot's quite open, how much... Th- thoughts are you giving to how perfect the next word that you're writing is
3: it has it has to be I have to be happy with it shall we say um you know sometimes I will write a sentence just a short sentence of a dozen words and I will rewrite it 30 times until I'm happy with it and I find reading it out is really useful because I hear music like uh, sorry I hear words like music so I will hear beats in a sentence and I will read a sentence. and I think that sentence needs another crotchet or it needs another semiquaver. The, the rhythm of that sentence isn't right. So I do a lot of reading out um, to make sure I'm happy with the flow and the, the kind of rhythm, the beats in the sentence. And also, I think when you when you get dialogue, it's important to read it out because what might look natural on a page is not natural when you read it. You think nobody actually speaks like that. Um, so reading it out and editing it and going over and over and over it and trying to find the most succinct way of saying something. You know, the, the best writing I says, I think says the, the most in as fewer words as possible. And you look at a sentence, you think, what can I take out of this sentence that will make absolutely zero difference to the meaning? You know, can I take a dozen words out of this paragraph because they don't actually serve a purpose? So I'm quite strict as I'm editing. Um, so I have to be happy with something before I'll move on. And just
2: lastly, I guess, on the, the 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 fact that you kind of know the last word to the book and you know you want to get to Glasgow, as we've discussed, but you're letting the characters make drag you there. How willing are they to end up where you want them to?
3: I think if you know your characters well, and you've, you've heard the voice, the risk of sounding vaguely psychotic. You've heard their voices for a long time. Um, you know where they will take you and you know where they want to go. So I think it's a collaboration between you and the people that you've conjured up where you will end up. And if you've conjured the right people up, they will take you to Glasgow, no problem. Maybe it's worth taking a look at the kind of secondary characters in the story, the people that you you didn't really explore that much and think, well, maybe one of those characters is actually my main narrator and they're just hiding in the background. Um, because if you've, if you've got your theme and you've got your end point and you've got your characters, they should naturally take you to where you want to go. And maybe you need to just walk away from it for a while and not think about it for a couple of weeks and then go back. Uh, or maybe you need to just think who's telling this story and is that the best person?
2: That is it for this week's Writer's Routine with Joanna Cannon. Thank you so much to joe for coming on the show. That new book is a tidy ending. Grab a copy if you can uh, at your local bookshops. Always support the local bookshops if you can. And our next week well, next week we've, we've not got an episode actually. I'm having a one week holiday. I'm off for some sun, if that's okay. I've not missed a show since Christmas, and then before that it's been a, a year plus. Uh, So and I just like too many plates spinning for me to kind of sort this out early. I know that's a really weak excuse, but you've got a week off and then we're back all guns blazing a week after that. So you've got two weeks until the next episode of Writer's Routine. In that time, there are over 200 episodes that you can catch up on. If you've missed if you're, if you're you've missed anything, if you're new to the party, if you just like to re-listen to some of your favourite chats, they're all there. You can find them all at writersroutine.com or on your podcast feed. You can get in touch with the show on the website too. You can support us at patreon.com forward slash writersroutine and you can give us a follow at writerspod on Twitter. And I will see you in two weeks in mid-May for a brand new episode of the show.